Hi everyone, it's Joakim Makren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast. Podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. This time I have Adam Jaffe on the show. Adam is founder and CEO of Mega Studio, a gaming outfit based out of Barcelona, Spain. Adam has a broad scope of knowledge from the game space, having worked at companies like Playtica, Moon Active, Jam City and Social Point before founding Mega Studio. In this discussion, we talk about advising startups, how to build games that make money, and what unconventional solutions should game developers apply to create success in gaming. The dilemma at the heart of mobile gaming. Monetizing your great work while keeping gamers engaged and not distracted by intrusive ads. Well, our partners on this podcast have a very clever solution. AudioMob delivers in-game audio ads so that game developers can monetize their players without interrupting gameplay. Audio ads are better at retaining happy gamers than video ads and can actually work alongside video ads too. This is all the while having much higher CPMs than banner ads, up to 600% higher. AudioMob's Unity plugin is simple to set up. It can take just minutes, allowing complete privacy control, and you can even reward players for extra gratification. Simple, clever, and rewarding. Go to audiomob.com for details and to speak to the team. All right, we're recording. Hey, Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Super happy to be here. We have so much to cover. Like we last talked, there was so many ideas, so many cool things to explore. I wanted to first kick things off by hearing your origin story and how you made your way into gaming. Yeah, man. Well, you know, typical origin stories, dark alleyway, murdered parents. You know, like it's, I'd say that that's probably <laughs> like, it's the classic. No, I think, you know, I think my, my story is one of kind of fortune, if I'm honest. It was a sort of fortuitous route to, to where I got to because, you know, I, after I graduated university and I studied in, in university, there was no course in digital marketing or this didn't exist. I remember reading the textbook and the, the section on digital was like six pages. You know, that was, that was the only exposure we had to, to this concept of online marketing. And so I studied, you know, I studied international business and I studied philosophy. I actually feel like philosophy is, is, the, is the discipline that I, I draw in most when I'm, when I'm thinking about, you know, gaming and motivation and what, what drives individuals. After I graduated university, I actually moved to Israel to play professional soccer. Uh, professional football and uh, had no intention of going into into business at that time i was like i'm going to be a professional athlete i'm going to make millions of dollars and then i realized that that wasn't actually going to happen for me and uh, it was quite a humbling experience but nevertheless you know saddled with a ton of student debt and credit card bills that i couldn't afford i thought okay well, i need to get a job and at that time the best paying jobs in israel for non-Hebrew speakers was working in basically as like affiliate marketers or even even customer support for casinos. Israel was so is still today the sort of epicenter of the online casino business. And so I started working 
for a casino. And it was just kind of like building blocks. And I think even early in my career, I've always been a fairly gregarious individual. You know, I'm a, a very out, you know, outwardly facing, talk to people and, and try to create relationships. And in those early days, I ended up meeting a, a very good friend of mine who's maintained my friendship over, yeah, it's been 15 years already, I think. And this guy named Maor. And he and I were working together in this casino and then he left. And basically, I realized that like this was a terrible work environment. It was a kind of boiler room type environment, which was very aggressive. And I knew that wherever he was going to go, because he shared the same sort of sentiment that I did, that it wouldn't be the same kind of environment. So he ended up hiring me to a company called Matomi. And that worked out for about a year and a half. And it wasn't really a very successful stint in my professional career. Ended up getting fired by my org, which I guess was the best thing that ever, you know, sometimes they say, this is probably the best thing that's ever going to happen to you. Well, that literally was the best thing that ever happened to me because the next week after he fired me, he went to a conference and he met somebody and he said, sent me a message to Adam, don't sign with any company until you speak to this company, to this guy. It's like, okay, great. The guy's name is Robert Antrical, CEO of Platica. I ended up going to the interview and basically being like, I don't care what I need to do to get this job. Don't pay me. Don't, you know, whatever. I'll prove to you that I'm, I'm the guy for this. And that was it. I ended up landing the role of, as head of marketing. I was the 10th employee of the company. with the first sort of non-technical hire that they brought in and built and ran the marketing department there for the first year of, of Playtica and then moved over to the mobile side when Shlomi Eisenberg, who's now, I think, SVP or COO or something, I mean, now is very high up in the company. Uh, when he came over, I launched the mobile product. I built an affiliate program. I launched the website. I just did a bunch of, a bunch of things. That's kind of my the origin of my my where I've come from, right? Which is that I got very lucky joining that one company. A lot of I think a lot of people who who get to higher higher positions in companies uh, ultimately have that one. And it's always fun to look at people's LinkedIn profiles. You kind of scroll back, like where was it? Which which where was their university? Yeah, okay, fine. They went to whatever Oxford or whatever Yale. But like, where did they actually learn their job? And then you see that one place. And for me, it was Playtica. And I think in this interview, you'll kind of hear this sort of common theme about. The sort of, you got to be able to put yourself out there, this sort of tenacity. And and really, I rely on other people to help me, but at the end, you got to kind of put the work in yourself. And I think that's what got me to where I am today. So it was a lot of grinding hard work and, and also taking risks for myself. Like I literally told Robert, you don't have to pay me. And I think on the one hand, he kind of thought that was funny, but for me, that was a real, like, that was a true statement for myself. I didn't realize later that that would have been illegal and I probably could have sued him, but that's sort of beside the point. You ended up like going in, into positions in gaming and and you're now a founder of Mega Studio. Can you kind of give a few words, introduction to your company now? Sure. So, you know, I have to say that, that Mega Studio is, is as much an extension of me as it is a business. It's a, sort of an extension of my personality. As I mentioned before, I'm a fairly gregarious individual. I, I enjoy sort of being out in the world and, and, and listening to stories and you know, helping companies scale their businesses, especially in the gaming space, although not specifically limited to that, that that space. And so Mega Studio was founded a year ago, basically on the back of the idea of, of being a gaming agency, right? We wanted to, you know, I kind of had this, I was sort of stuck in this path. I said, okay, what do I want to do? I build a team, raise a round, make a game. And I have done that before. I did that with my previous company. And, or try something a little bit different. You know, I have all these opportunities to consulting. Maybe I'll just form a consulting company, but more focused on game development. And then from that kind of extending outwardly into just other other areas of, of the gaming space. And so that's what I did. We currently have one major contract with a company based in Germany. My team today is, we're 20 people. We're half the team is in Romania, 
half the team here in Spain. And essentially we cover the entire spectrum of game development. You know, we help companies from building products, product design, ideation, product design, features, GDDs, whatever it is, through to product game development, launch, live operations of those products, continuing to maintain and, and to service those games. And the other side, we're also helping companies that are just needing to think through aspects of their business, you know, whether that be marketing, technology. I sit on the advisor board of a few companies and, and the way I in, interact with those businesses is similar to kind of how we push ourselves out there as consultants, which is, you know, sort of embed ourselves in the team and, and really try to understand the business. It's not like a, an Accenture or McKinsey where you come in, here's like a hundred grand, you're going to pay us to, to do this like really complicated, whatever this thing is. It's not really how I function. It's more about really trying to be valuable. So we try to be cost efficient, but but also valuable to these people. And so that's a little bit the kind of DNA of the company. Eventually, we'll be making our own games. And and so the, the route that I decided to take was this sort of bootstrap route in which we're doing third-party game development as a function or as a way for us to essentially support the, the growth of the team and, and growth of the business. We're going to come back to that stuff later on the pod. I wanted to like get into your learnings from gaming since you've worked at Playtica. Social Point, several big studios, Jam City. Like, would you say that monetization is more important than retention as a KPI? Yeah, we talked about this before, and I think I think there's a lot of different schools of thought on this. And I would say that it's always interesting when you come into a company and you look at the CEO and you say, okay, is this a product guy or a marketing guy? Because depending on who you're going to be, who's leading the business, this is going to have a big impact on 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 not specifically the kinds of products you make but 100% on the focus of those products. And so when I've come into companies where, where product leaders are the CEOs, they really emphasize retention. They emphasize, you know, we got to make sure that those users stay through the game. And so there's a lot of emphasis on sort of long-term retention rates. And the problem that I've always found in these types of environments is that they often find themselves in a position in which sacrificing monetization for retention. Now, of course, you don't have people staying in your game, they won't spend money. And I've seen it go both ways, highly monetizing games with no retention. That's not so great either, but there is a balance. And so where I think it's important for, for companies and why I think monetization is more important to focus on than retention is that if your game doesn't make money, your business doesn't make money, full stop. And it's much easier, in my opinion, to retain a product than it is for them to spend money. And so if you have this emphasis on, okay, how do we create value for the user early on, day three, day seven, day 10, so that they're staying and paying, this ultimately will give you a better chance of, of being of having a successful product out and out. You know, I've had experiences in which these games were, especially um, in, in sort of later in my career, you see these games which have amazing retention rates, right? But the game, they just wouldn't, no, no money and no one was spending any money. And when I was able to actually kind of peek under the hoods of these products, what you were realizing was that the way these games were built we're basically to get players, get them through, keep them playing, keep them coming back. But eventually, and if you think about it from a psychological perspective, it makes sense. Eventually, if a person isn't paying for a product for day one, day seven, day 10, all of a sudden it's day 40 and they're not, they haven't paid. Getting to pay in day 41 is virtually impossible, right? This concept of like, yeah, just having them be in my product. Actually, a person who's just in your game doesn't actually help you all that much as a business. And I think that's why I tend to emphasize that to, to, to developers and to founders and say, you, if your game doesn't make money, then your business is going to fail, generally speaking. Now, VCs and PE, you know, there's a lot of money out there to continue to invest and to get those companies to, okay, we, game A was a failure, but we love the team. So we're going to invest more to get to game B and, they, and they'll eventually learn. But the kind of core of my philosophy is that, you know, 
you run a business and that, that business should, should by definition make money. And if you emphasize that as a, as a, as a cornerstone of your business, say saying when a player comes in, we should be able to monetize them. It also forces the game designer and, and, and everybody else to think whatever that person is going to need to collect from my product needs to be good enough to keep them coming back again and again. I, I, would, I would say one final thought on this is that I've seen a lot happen more often than I would care to, to say, but you often look at retention rate as, as, a, as a global number. Hey, you break it by country, by platform, by device, even sometimes by, by source, like this is an organic user versus a paid user or whatever. But very infrequently do you see it as paid a person who is a paying customer versus a person who has not paid. And one of the things that I've always found quite interesting was that if you look at, say, the retention rate of a paying customer for most products, the, the day 30 retention rate, if a person has paid in the first two, three days, is typically between 40 and 80%, right? Assuming you have a decent economy, yeah? But again, this would be a very kind of hyper-focused point in which if you see that you have a very low retention rate of paying customers, then you know you have an economic problem or the game is, is somehow there's an inflation happening in some way. But this, this point is that oftentimes when you take in that, that KPI and you're looking at it, if you don't separate your payers from your non-spenders, oftentimes what you're doing is you're tuning a game for a population, a majority population, because maybe your global retention rate is 4% day 30. Well, that may also be because you have millions of, DA, of, of installs. And so, of course, it's low, but it's not actually the thing that's hurting your business, right? I think that's a little bit the, the kind of dynamic that I look for. That's so interesting. Like, there's so much to dig into there. But I, I wanted to ask you about the, the studios that you've worked with and what you've seen kind of commonalities there where they've kind of beat the competition in the market to become the leaders. So I think, I think there are three key areas that the, the companies that I've worked for have, have all exhibited that have made them successful. And I think one is that they really understood their, their users and they understood what their users were looking for. So we weren't trying to like make a hundred different types of products. We we're like, no, no, we're going after this one type of user. We know who these people are. We know what they like and, and we're just going to keep giving it. And in, that, and in that context, sort of an extension of that is that all the companies that I worked for very quickly understood what content they needed to create in order to maintain sort of supremacy within the market. You know, Plexco, it was, it was the machines, right? We, we had, we were releasing more slot machines faster than anybody else. And so because that game is very dependent on, on level progression, that was a big driver of those early users. The more machines we had, the more consistently they would be coming back to the business. And so, you know, when you looked at, the, at that time back in 2011, 2012, guys like Double Down, you know, they, they were bigger than us at that time, but they weren't matching our pace in terms of, in terms of content creation. And so we were able to essentially eat the market up by, by just having more consistency in that scenario. And then the final thing, which I think is probably, I would say maybe even the most important is that all the companies that I've seen that are actually successful have done one thing very well, which is that they have managed to be profitable at marketing quickly. And, has, and that has always been an emphasis this idea of monetization. And when you have profitable marketing within within a 360 days, yeah, that's like, that's the highest point that I would look for. But if you're, if you're profitable marketing after six months, it gives you so much of an advantage on, on everybody else, because as long as you, what that tip, what that would mean is that you also have stacking cohorts. And it means that over time, you're building value into your business as you market. And so many companies, so many companies I know, for, the, for them, profitability is 50% or 70%. And it's blended. And they're adding in the organics and they're adding in the, hey, it's cross-platform with 16, you know, and they're, they're like, they're making it work 
but also they're losing six, seven, 10, 20 million dollars a year because the, the amount that they're spending in marketing just will never come back. And, and it creates a scenario in which your, your business is always on a knife edge, right? You have a bad six months, you know, that carries on in, in very, very dramatic and impactful ways. And so when I look at the companies today, which have been overly successful, I'm going to discount guys that are coming from the Facebook era, you know, guys like King and Social Point, which essentially had these massive games on Facebook. And when they push them to mobile, you know, you can gloss over a lot of bad game development. And I'm not saying these games were poorly developed yet, but I'm just saying you can gloss over a lot of bad stuff when you have a hundred million DAU, right? And I think that also becomes a kind of, I want to say flag or line in the sand today, because that doesn't exist anymore. This idea of growth hacking, Facebook's, you know, sort of authentic, you know, they're, they're, they're the friends feeds and all that, you can't do that anymore. And there really is no system in which you have access to tons and tons of, of installs. You can't do burst campaigns. You can't manipulate the store algorithms. Like you gotta be spending money in order for those games to grow. So when you look at these old products, you're like, these guys grew in a way that essentially isn't possible today. Even classic clans like Supercell had the same kind of same function, right? I don't know how many millions of DAU that I think at one point that classic clans had like 20 something odd million DAU was just because it was such a great product amongst a bunch of not such great products. And, and it grew through a ton of marketing, but it was also sort of a, a one of the first of its kind. So if you if you look at today's companies, which have become successful, especially the ones that, that I'm sort of working with, you see that they have really clearly understood how to make money for marketing. And that's not a, it's not a small feat, let's put it like that, because it requires the game developers and the game designers to really have a clear, a clear sense of this idea of the payback period of marketing, right? Like my goal is to get profit after X number of days. Marketing always looks at that, right? We, we, we look at ROAS, we're saying day 365 ROAS is, is this, this is what we see as our, you know, profitability curve. And then we march that back to day seven to get our sort of benchmarks. And now we know when we code our partners, we need a 25% day seven ROAS in order for us to be profitable at 360. That's like the most standard calculation that a, that a marketing person will do. But the product teams essentially never look at it like that. It's just not a function that they're that they're required to look at. And it's usually not something that they build for. And what ends up happening is that those two people sort of miss each other on the, on the monetization market. And so that's why before I was mentioning about having uh, monetization being a, a driving force, it's not just about making more money. It's about being profitable when you spend money. Let's come back to building out the marketing team a bit later. I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on older titles since you worked at Social Point and places like that, Jam City, where there's older titles. Maybe the growth has plateaued. There's nothing happening to the games, but then all of a sudden the team manages to do a turnaround and get the game growing again. How is that actually possible? What What is sort of like a key ingredient there? So it's exactly what I, it's, it's, a, it's a very good tie-in for the previous sort of topic I was mentioning. It's, it's exactly that, right? Whereas before, you know, when, when a lot of times when companies are into growth, right, there is this sort of general emphasis on, on first-time user experience and day 30 retention rates and monetization. And then as those games start to enter into their sort of, I don't know what you call it, twilight years, the, the kind of end of their lives. Basically, it's just content creation and, and keeping those sort of elder cohorts and sort of end of life content. And so what ends up happening is, is that when you see, and, and I actually had, a, had the opportunity to work on a whole host of games, working with companies like Decca Games, Phoenix Games, and even Jam City, I was working on their old legacy products, was that a lot of these games were into this sort of sunset mode. So they had a team maintaining, was in sort of maintenance mode, they were either creating more dragons or more levels or whatever it is. And then I was stepping in and I was saying, okay, yeah, we, we're, we're trying to refocus the team, 
but we're no longer refocusing for say growth, right? It's not about growth. Now it's about profitability. It's a big difference. It's a big difference between doing something profitable and doing something for growth. And once you orient the team around growth metrics, you're essentially foregoing the idea that things need to work great. They just, because you're going to be pumping in traffic. But when you say, hey guys, listen, we're not here for top line revenue. We're here for contribution margin. We're here for, you know, maximizing the value you can generate. All of a sudden the features, the, the roadmap, it looks really different because you're, you're emphasizing different types of opportunities. And so when I've come into companies and, and done exactly what you're, you're talking about here, turning around games, it's that my first thing is I'm, I'm aligning the teams on, on we're going to spend money and that money needs to be profitable. It needs to be profitable for 365 days as the maximum. What we prefer is six months. So what do we need to get to? So we work backwards from this. So your current ARP DAO is 10 cents. Your ad ARP DAO, we're adding another six cents. And our RPI curve is is like this, right? I don't know. You're going to earn $2 after 365 days, whatever, right? Based on your retention rate. But your CPI is $4. So we're hitting 50% profitability after 365. We're not even close to that, that metric. And so we start breaking out the components. Okay, where can we make more money? And it's and it's, you sort of go through this step function. Again, it's not a lot of product changes. You're not like coming in and being like, what we really need is a leaderboard or like a PVP tournament or whatever. These are fine and they're, they're good things to have, but it's really about getting the game team to sit down and think, my company is a business. My game is a business and, and how do I maximize the value from every user I bring? Marketing is going to do its job by bringing those people. How do we make sure that, that, that this thing works? And, and oftentimes it's the first time the games are, are being presented this way. And so I think that the quote unquote turnaround, yes, a person can come up with a great feature, release a, a new world, and then all of a sudden it opened up for a whole host of, but it's typically in that moment, what you're really talking about is we're making more money from our existing cohorts, but we're, we're still not necessarily able to, to bring in more first-time users. Yeah, interesting. The, the area that I spend a lot of time with is like this super early stage, like first day companies that are just getting in, like lots of experienced free-to-play game developers are leaving existing game studios to start their own game studios. When you think about this situation, what are the few things that these people should pay attention to at the start? Yeah, so I think I actually just gave a talk on this to the to a bunch of, kind of first time devs in, in Turkey, and and the one the probably the main emphasis that I was trying to push was today your game needs to work on marketing, so be very careful because the the marketing environment has changed dramatically from say even two years ago, sort of before the ATT, before the IDFA. I'm not going to call it IDFA deprecation because it didn't actually deprecate it, just forced with this very predatory pop-up into the face of the, of the end user. You must accept this pop-up in order to, in order to have tracking. And I don't want to kind of go into this whole, <laughs> this whole mess now because I'm sure you've had people on your podcast talk about this. But, but the fundamental outcome of this was that the type of game you choose has a lot to do with its profit. Well, well sorry. Yeah, the, the type of game that you choose, you know, will have a better or worse impact with the marketing that you're going to make. But that didn't sound good enough. But you get the point. Meaning that if I choose a hardcore RPG title, all right, that I'm that I need very specific sales, and and let's say it's even a, it's even branded, right? Like Warhammer, for instance. Well, there's just not that many Warhammer games out there for you to like go and and, and run marketing in. And even those games may not all have ads in them, meaning that you can't buy that traffic. And so you need to now go to all of these other products and, and hope that your contextual ads, these ads which you 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 hope that a person might like this particular creative is gonna is gonna click on. And it makes it much, much, much more expensive. And so if you were relying on finding niche 
users with very, very high monetizing, very high LTVs, this will become not impossible, but exceedingly difficult in today's market, especially what's happening with Google. Because it used to be, even today, you could use sort of proxy on Google. Well, we see these bundle IDs are delivering value. We can run that set of contextual ads inside of uh, iOS and we can point our, our DSP or whatever, say, hey, go find these users in this bundle ID. But now with Google ID coming into, into question and we've got, you know, what, what, what iOS has come down to is that choosing the right game will make it much easier, much more difficult to actually find profitability and growth. And so the first thing I'm always telling them is make sure you really understand the market that you're about to step into. Are there competitors in your space? If there are, are they running ads? These are all big questions because if you have big, if you have a lot of competitors and all of them are running ads, that's actually probably a good thing for you because this means you're going to have a good source of traffic to start pulling users from into your own product. Even if it's like prop, you know, like sort of close, you know, I don't know, you make a match three, but so you also go to the bubble shooters or you also go to the, the merge, right? So they're all more or less casual products. So I think it's, it's an important, it's a, as a first step, that's very important. I'm constantly thinking about red ocean versus blue ocean here. So what you're saying is that the, the red ocean is actually good for mobile games UA. Like, 100%. Is that is that the case with like dream games and royal match? Because like there's a bunch of match three puzzle games where they could drive the traffic. It's like and then if you think about midcore, it's usually like ads aren't that popular in midcore. So is that part of the reason why it's so costly to do stuff with the the mid-core high fantasy the- thematics and whatnot. Yeah, 100%. It's exactly the reason. Because, you know, if you think back to when I was doing marketing for, for, for Playtica back in 2011, there was no such thing as localized. We, we, everything was contextual, right? We knew some things about users, but fundamentally, we just went out there and tried to find them. And, and shocking, there's just not that much casino traffic available. There was really nothing out there, right? So what we used to do, is we used to just go do direct deals. I call it, I call it Double Down. I call it Mytopia. These companies were back in the day. And I said, hey, let me do a traffic swap with you. And they were always shocked. Like, I don't understand. Why are you Why are you doing this? That doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, because I can't, I can't I'm, I'm going to take it from you anyway, from Facebook. I'd much prefer just to come directly to you and we, we do a deal in which we share our traffic. And these were always really successful deals. In fact, I have a kind of funny story about, I, I, did, I did a deal with one guy uh, with one company uh, when I was in Playtica. And, and so, you know, remember these, I don't, I don't remember if you remember these companies like Up or Appetize. Actually, Appetize became Unity Ads. They were bought by them. But, you know, you would send a click and you get a click in return. Yep. So this, so we set up a campaign with this company and right away, it was clear. Like we were sending like 10,000 clicks a day and they were sending us like 600. It was like, okay, we probably should have throttled this a little bit better, whatever it was. So it was literally like, I'm about to pick up the phone to call the guy and be like, hey, we need to cancel. And, and he calls me. He's like, Adam, we have to cancel the, the campaign. And I was like, wait a minute. No, no, no. I'm supposed to be telling you that. He's like, well, we, we made a mistake. We, we didn't, we showed, we showed the banner to everyone in our game, including all our VIPs and they're gone. They're not playing our game anymore. And I was like, oh God, pretty clear to me also, because I see all this money coming in from this campaign. I was about to tell you that it's a shame we're going to have to turn it off because it's such a great campaign and I'm really excited about it, but I, I understand. Anyway, a week later it goes by, I call the guy back up and I say, Hey, I got to ask, like, did, did what's happening, man? Is it, you guys are going out of business. And he's like, no, 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 everybody came back. Everybody's back to paying. Everybody's back to playing. I was like, okay, cool. Cause we're still making a, sh- I guess I can't swear. We're still making a lot of money from your players. 
And it was actually one of the first times that, that I realized that, you know, this, like I actually saw this idea of, of that the wallet doesn't really exist in gaming, right? So if you have two or three games, which you really like, you'll spend in all those games. It was no longer like, I play this one product. I have this, you know, my 20% of entertainment value is going in here. And, oh, sorry, I already spent my 20%. I can't play it in this other product. That that sort of threw it out the window. And so, you know, when I think about, you know, what you're describing about, whether it be Red Ocean or Blue Ocean, the the more you can mix that traffic, the, the better it is for everybody. Thinking about the, the early stage, because we, we have this chat about the advisors, bringing on advisors. I had this post on LinkedIn. What are your thoughts on game founders bringing on advisors, experienced help to, to make them succeed? I think a lot of a lot of people out there are, are generalists. You know, they, they know a lot about a, a little amount, and they don't have a lot of practical knowledge about you know how to how to do things. But they can, you know, I've seen some things. I, I did some things. Like I raised a round once, or I sold a company, or I did this, and then that makes you an expert in the business. In which case, yeah, I definitely want your input in those moments, even to the degree that I need to know how did you get to that place. The thing with an advisory board is that, especially if you're giving points, right, giving a half a percent. 0.25%, you know, you, you're, you're marrying this individual for a long period of time. And you also want to kind of understand that this person is really here to help future-proof your business. So they can give me practical, hands-on experience. So I'll give you as an example for myself. I practically run campaigns. I, I've had that knowledge. I can tell you setup. I can tell you cost structure. I can tell you what's good for Facebook, what kind of lookalikes, percentages. Like that's, that's like day zero type of information you'd want you know, when you're starting marketing, for instance. But I also can tell you, you know, as your business grows, how to get better deals, how to how to how to kind of work within this bigger system to to go out bigger. Okay, once you've moved past Facebook or Google, what are like the next steps? You want to bring in advisors that that offer you the ability to at certain stages of your business. Now, maybe your business gets to IPO state. I never IPO'd a company. I would never even pretend to be able to advise a company on that process. That being said, I can get you basically up into that point. And I think when you look at, I'm not here to like promote myself, but what I am saying is that what I think about myself as a litmus, sort of a benchmark for, for advisors, I want somebody that when I'm five people or three people and I have an idea, I can help you iron that idea out. And then as you say, okay, well, you know, Adam, we're about to start marketing. Okay, cool. So I can either help you hire this person, or I could even do something for you until you bring in an agency or I can give you these, these pointers. And so the problem I have with, with the, the typical advisory board is that, that the people just haven't seen enough. And so their input tends to be too, too generalist. You know, it's like, ooh, this could work. I remember, you know, it's kind of almost like investors. Like I remember I had an investor once tell me that my, my banners didn't have it. All the great banners have it, but yours don't. It's like, okay, man, sorry, I'm on that. Next time I'll have it. I'll have it ready and, and, and it will be available for everyone to see what it is, you know? And, and for me personally, now, if I was sitting in that position, I wouldn't, I would never ask for that. I would say, okay, here's how we're going to build this out. We're going to look at these things. We're going to break this stuff down. And so I think, you know, for, to your point in your post, you were saying, yeah, like a lot of percentages are given away to people who are useless beyond this very specific moment in time. Like you're great at fundraising. So I'm going to come join my company because I, I, you have a ton of knowledge. But all of a sudden we're like, okay, we've made five games. What's the next game? And why should it be that game? And, and I'm not saying that, that you're not amazing at doing that. You probably are. But you'd be like, well, I was really good at fundraising, but maybe I'm not so great at game design. So my like usefulness to you, well, tell me when we're going to raise a round because I'm ready for that part, you know? And I think that becomes a little bit of the, the nuance that you need to kind of understand. So early founders need people who 
who have seen a lot of things and who have made a lot of bad decisions. You know, you don't want the guy who's worked in Zynga his whole career, although Zynga, maybe there's been some bad decisions taken. A super self, maybe a better one. Because in the end, it's like the, the limited view through just doesn't give you the kind of context that you might need in order to scale a, a Sudoku-based hyper-casual business, you know? With limited resources. With limited resources. Hey, like going back to the marketing bit, if you're looking at a, an early stage company that has raised the seed, pre-seed round, like very early, coming out of the gate, soft launch numbers looking good, there's some initial ROAS, how should that studio build out marketing? What kind of team should they have? Do they need a CMO first who's going to set things up? Like, what should that look like? I think there are two things here. So first and foremost, you know, when, when you're thinking about a company they're raising a pre-seed most most you know no most pre-seeds are like topping out at like two to two to six million right so you're usually not like stressed for cash people understand most companies understand at least in the bc space that if you've got a good team they're going to need the time and, and they're going to need the money to, to have that so that's typically not a problem i mean i remember what i raised a long time ago that was, that was like a million was seen as like a crazy amount for a seed round even with a product already in the market But there are two kind of directions that I would take for this. Firstly, gaming is at its core a community. And I think oftentimes companies are just afraid to ask, okay, I have a question. I can't tell you how many times people have just reached out to me and I'm like, yeah, I'm super happy. And they're so surprised. I can't believe that you responded to my email. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you, you wanted some tips on marketing. I'm, I'm happy to give a little five minute masterclass. You know, it doesn't, doesn't cost me anything. And who knows, this is actually going to, This is part of one of the one of your questions that you you asked me at the end. This idea of, of being nice to people, but this is one of those areas where having a very good advisor on your advisory board can be basically can save you hundreds of thousands of dollars. Not just in the cost that it might cost to hire a CMO if you're based in say the United States and you need to give up a lot of equity and you need to give up a lot of costs for that individual, but they can also literally save you because I think oftentimes when you hire a CMO style individual. What you get is somebody who is gearing towards a specific concept that they already have, right? I need a team of this and that, and da, 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 da. I need these all, all these things. And you're like, whoa, we still need to test the marketing even works. We need to understand the banners. We need to, and so having somebody super operational is really key in that moment. But if you yourself don't understand how to manage that person because you are a product person, you never touch marketing, it can also be a a fractious situation, you know, misalignment, miscommunication, misunderstanding. You, you know, I'm asking him, you know, I keep telling him that the, that the marketing is terrible or that the banners aren't great. And he's telling me, yeah, but they're, they're what the market needs. You know, I'm putting together the, the kind of, you know, like your play them style, crazy, doesn't have anything to do with the game. And it's like killing retention rate, but the ROAS is really positive. Like there's a hundred reasons why product marketing can completely miss each other, especially if the founders are not marketing people. And so I think your advisors in these moments can be very, very, very helpful in sussing out, this is what it should look like. This is why I think you should have a person like this. I can even hold that position for a moment in terms of managing that process. It gives them a little bit more confidence to hire somebody with a little less experience, but also a lot cheaper because you're typically more cost efficient. Beyond that, the, the, the true emphasis, I think, shouldn't be placed necessarily on media buyers, but should be based on, on creative. And so making sure you've got a, a, a team inside. And, and, and to be honest, I'm not even such a, you know, I used to be a pretty anti-agency, but actually in these moments, again, you can't have the blind leading the blind. So choosing the right agency also is where an advisor can help. But I was working for a company recently, a big company, and they, they basically didn't have any marketing. And so rather than me going on and I was looking to hire somebody to fill that spot, I just took an agency right away because I wanted, you know, wanted to get things kind of moving. It was pretty cheap, you know, basically the same cost per month 
it would cost me to bring in uh, a, a guy with maybe five, six years of experience here in Europe. So I don't know, it was like 60 grand a year for this agency. But what I got, two media buyers, a creative, a creative designer. And yes, there was a little bit of top up on media costs. So, but as that would have gone, I would have, of course, covered the, the cost and then the profitability. And I think this gives you a, a significant advantage in the early phase. You don't lose a whole lot. You know, sometimes if you have an agency for an extended period of time, you know, losing that, that knowledge because they gain everything and then you eventually cut the contract and they go. So you quickly bring in somebody that you can start to augment that strategy and eventually you move the agency away and you've got your, your guy or girl for that matter. Yeah, really interesting stuff. So, hey, Adam, let's go to the final questions here. What's your favorite book and why? I was thinking about it. It's a, it's a tough question. I don't, I don't do a lot of reading, but I do a lot of listening. So I, I listen to, yeah, I'm usually like in, into like the 60 hour a month, 70 hour a month type of category. I'm usually putting in five or six books a month through Audible. But recently, and I think recently meaning like the last like 10, 15 years, there was a book that I came across. I've never lived very far from the ocean. Water has always been sort of a part of me, both physically and metaphorically speaking. And I read this book recently called The Wave and not the one with, with the, about the high school experiments. It was basically about chasing these rogue freak waves. This woman wrote this book, Susan Casey. And, and what I found so fascinating about this book, which is something that I personally kind of always hold, is that before 2000, the idea of these rogue waves, which were these 100 foot plus waves in the ocean, were seen as like once every 10,000 years. Like essentially, we don't have to build or worry about this type of stuff. And then they started doing this research and they were starting to get this data in once these sort of satellites and, and they realized that it's like, actually it's like once every three or two to three days that something like this will appear, right? And they kept getting all of this data coming in. And, and, and it just, it, for me personally, I love the, the story is fun and it's, she's a great writer, but always reminds me that there can be these things in the world, <laughs> massive, huge things that you, just because you don't see them doesn't mean that they don't exist. And it sort of kept, like, I always keep that in the back of my mind. Like when somebody's like, it's like this, and then and I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Like that. there are maybe other things out there that we just haven't seen yet. And so I, I like that. I like that concept. It's interesting. Do you have a story that shaped you and how you approach your work today? Yeah, I do. I'm really happy that I learned it early in my career because it, it really did shape almost every interaction that I've had with everyone since that moment. So I was mentioning that I had this friend Moor and he and I worked at a company together. And when he left his replacement, you know, I was really friendly with Moore. had a great relationship with him. He was working on the media team and I was, I was in, in the affiliate side. When he left, his replacement wasn't nice to me. I, you know, I, I had to walk by their office every day. I'd say, hi, blah, blah. They wouldn't say anything. Just really cold, really not, you know, kind of like you're, you're just this like worker. Who are you? You're nothing. I'm the manager. I don't, I don't need to interact with you. You know, I, I remember the first couple of days, it's, hey, you know, your, your predecessor was a good friend of mine. Like, I'm, I'm here to help you if you need me. I've been in the company a year and a half. Like, I know the ropes. If you have any questions, nothing, never. And then I left and um, I was like, yeah, that, were, that person was not, wasn't, wasn't a nice person, but didn't really think too much of it. Then went to my company, blah, blah, nothing. Went to Playtica, worked at Playtica. I get this phone call from, from Morris. Hey, you know, that, that person that we were talking about before, they're interviewed to be head of marketing at Playtica. And I walked into Robert's office immediately and I said, if you hire this person, I quit. There's no discussion about it. If you want them, that's great, but this, I won't work in this company. And he was like, whoa, okay. So that, that didn't happen for them. And then six months later, somebody else called me and said, hey, I heard you used to work with this person. What, what, what do you think about them? And I said, if, if, you, if you value company culture and if you value people and, and, and knowledge transfer, you don't hire this person because that's not the type of individual they are. And he's like, oh, thank you so much. And that he ended up selling like a year later for, I don't know, three or 4 million. It wasn't, it was, it was a while ago. <clears throat> and of course, 
the guy who eventually took over from me from the marketing side, Shlomi is now, I think his salary has got to be, I don't know, whatever the S1 was, but he's worth many, many tens of millions of dollars. And so I had this very practical kind of exposure to, I was nobody when that person came to the company. I, I, I was, I may even have been a bit arrogant, but I was, I was nobody. I held no power. I had no title other than VIP affiliate manager. And they saw that as not needing to care about that individual. And fast forward two years, I stood in their way of two potentially life-changing opportunities for them. If uh, you can't say that they would, would have stayed or whatever, but, but it was me personally blocking them. And, and seeing that happen and then seeing the, the, the turnaround of the companies that, you know, that always stuck with me. And it was to say that you don't know, this, this industry is so fickle. You don't know that tomorrow, Joe, you're not going to be the CEO of some crazy company. You know, all those people that, you know, kind of pissed on you or now you're like, they're coming back to you and you're like, ha, like F all you guys, like I'm here now. And I think that showed me that you just be like, no matter how much you want to like, just punch the dude in the face or like scream and shout, or you, you could do that to your peers, but you never do that to somebody that's under you. You just never, you, because you never know, because this industry in, in, in two years, the guy who's, who's a customer support manager could have a, a billion dollar business. I mean, it really is like that at this point. So that's my story. That really shaped how I, how I treat everybody. You know, I try and make sure that anyone who works for me is getting better. And anyone who I, work, who I engage with, you know, I'm trying to better them. Not So that when they do become, and that's basically how all my business is generated today. I, I do no business development at all, for the most part. Actually, at all. I just, hey, how's it going? Hey, Adam, I got this project. Can you help me with this? Oh, hey, I have this friend. They wanted to make this game. Maybe I heard you got a company. Let me, let me put you in contact. And I know a lot of people who are really good what they do, but they, they just never took that time. And so they're finding themselves way further along in their career than I am and still struggling to like make the connection, still struggling to, to close the deal because they never took the time to, to sort of lay the, the seeds and the foundation in the beginning. So yeah, yeah, very good one. Really, really good. Hey, as the last question, what's the best way for the audience, the podcast to get in contact with you if they have, you know, some things to talk about? Yeah, I mean, for me, Probably the best is LinkedIn. So Adam Jaffe, feel free to share my email, adam at mega.studio. It's a little bit easier. Companies make a studio, mega.studio. I've always kept a very open policy. You have questions, comments, you, you, you want to talk about games, you want. I like talking. Let's, let's put it like that. Generally speaking, you can ask my wife, much to her chagrin, I should say. But yeah, reach out to me. Happy to chat. Hey, thanks, Adam. This was so great. I learned a lot. I took like a bunch of notes here. I'm going to be thinking about these for a while still so super happy that you came on the show man thanks man thanks for coming it's a pleasure and yeah as a final thought i think like i said it, this is a small space you know yeah. we, we we're here to help each other you know we're not we're not a casino we're not like it's mine it's taking my territory right like we're all in this together and it's one of the things i love it's the it's why i love this industry so much and i think you know your things like what your podcasts are doing are just fantastic and i, and I love to support it so happy to be here hey see you out there man cheers bud bye Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Before you move on, please remember to follow or subscribe to our show so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is live. See you next week. Bye-bye.